How great is your God? How great is your God? How great is your God, huh? Hallelujah. Let me start with this. How to turn a disagreement into a feud. How to turn a disagreement or a conflict into a feud. And it's written by a gentleman named Lynn Buzzard, and he's a professor at a law school. And this is what he, he's a Christian man, and he wrote these eight things. Real quick, we'll walk through them. Be sure to develop and maintain a healthy fear of conflict, letting your own feelings build up so you are in an explosive frame of mind. That's your start. Number two, if you must state your concerns, be as vague and general as possible. Then the other person cannot do anything practical to change the situation. Number three, assume you know all the facts and you are totally right. The use of a, the use of a clinching Bible verse is helpful. Speak prophetically for truth and justice. Do most of the talking. Number four, with a touch of defiance, announce your willingness to talk with anyone who wishes to discuss the problem with you, but do not take steps to initiate such conversation. Number five, latch tenaciously onto whatever evidence you can find that shows the other person is merely jealous of you. Number six, judge the motivation of the other party on any previous experience that showed failure or unkindness. Keep track of any angry words. Husbands and wives... If the discussion should at last become serious, view the issue as a win-lose struggle. Avoid possible solutions and go for total victory and unconditional surrender. Don't get too many options on the table. And the last one, and this is a famous one, pass the buck. If you are about to get cornered into a solution, indicate you are without power to settle. You need your partner, spouse, bank, whatever. Always blame it on somebody else. That leads us to our passage, James 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts amongst you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. What is the source of the fights and conflicts amongst us? Why are children killing children today? We have children killing children at a record pace. Why do husbands beat up their wives? Why do wives beat up their husbands? I deal with both. Sometimes it's the woman that beats up the husband. Why do friends treat each other so badly sometimes? Why do we hurt the very ones that we say we love? What is the conflict? In the book, Love Must Be Tough by James Dobson, he recorded an illustration that graphically demonstrates 
how deeply these issues are affecting our society. He tells of a sixth grade teacher who gave her class a creative writing assignment. Each was asked to complete the sentence that begins with the words, I wish. Now, that teacher thought she would get things like, I wish I could go to Disneyland. I wish I had a puppy. I wish that I didn't have to go to school. I wish a lot of other things. She was a bit astonished to find out that 20 of the 30 children wrote these types of comments, this style. They were mostly about disintegrating families. I wish my parents wouldn't fight, and I wish my father would come back home. I wish my mother didn't have a boyfriend. I wish I could get straight A's so my dad would really love me. I wish I had one mom and one dad so the kids wouldn't make fun of me. I wish I had an M1 rifle so I could shoot those who do make fun of me. These are affairs of the heart. What is it that wars within us that makes us quarrel and fight? And he's talking now, remember, James is talking to the church, us. What makes us quarrel and fight? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war on your members? I think the point, I'm going to do three things with this passage today. I'm going to give you the cause of the conflict within the heart, because it all starts in your heart. When it says you desire, where does desire come from? It comes from your heart. And when we talk about the heart, biblically, we're talking about the mind. It starts in your head. It starts, I want what I want. James doesn't beat around the bush here at all. He goes right to the point. Why are you warring? Why are you quarreling? Why is there conflict? You're supposed to be following Jesus Christ. Why would there be conflict amongst you? You're supposed to love one another. Why is there conflict? And then he answers it. Is not the source of the pleasures that wage war in your members? In your members. It's waging war within you. The core cause of conflict is conflict desiring. The root of all conflict is found in the desire that rule our heart. The desires that rule your heart. What does he say in Scripture? He says that out of your mouth, we know where your heart's been. I know what your heart is if I just listen to you. If I observe you, I find out what's really in your heart. So if you're warring and quarreling, there's some stuff in your heart that you need to change. And what we typically do is we blame others. Whenever we got conflict going on. It's not my fault we're in a conflict. It's not my fault my wife doesn't want what I want. That's her fault. I'm blaming her. You know, you could look at somebody right now. You could turn to somebody right now and go, it's your fault. Husbands and wives, be careful. But that's what you can do. You can say, it's your fault. I'm blaming you. You know why? Because you don't want to look inside and see that you're the one with the fault. I can't tell you how many times I'm in counseling and I have a person come in and there's marital difficulties and all I hear about from that individual is he did this and he did that and he did this and he did that or she did this and she did that. And she, it's all put on the other individual. And the last time I looked, it takes two usually to fight. And so people never want to admit that they might have a problem. 
So man has been blaming it on someone else since the Garden of Eden. What did Eve say when God said, wait, wait, why do you guys got clothes on all of a sudden? I left you, you were naked, I come back, you got clothes on you, and you're hiding from me. What's going on? Oh, this serpent. It was the serpent. And what about you, Adam? What's your issue? Oh, it's this woman that you gave me, God. And we all been there, huh, man? <laughs> I wouldn't have half the fights if I didn't have a woman. Because that's who I'm fighting with most of the time. But that's what we do. And so since the beginning of time, why did Eve eat the fruit of that tree? Why did she eat that fruit? You know why? Because it looked good. It, she saw it was good for food. She said, hey, that looks like good fruit. Why can't I eat that? And if I eat it, I'm going to get all these things, according to the serpent. Unfortunately, she had God telling her one thing, and she was listening to another voice. And it was the wrong voice. But the desires of the heart is what we're talking about. The fruit of the tree of life was desirable. It looked good. But desires set against God don't work out. Once they, once they ate that fruit, that desire took over and they ate that fruit. It says from that point forward, they had, a, they had to find life from within themselves. They had to satisfy their own desire. And that's what we're all trying to do. We're all trying to satisfy our own desires. That's why there's a conflict. That's why we war. We want what we want. The question today is what will you do? What sin will you commit? To get what you want. What sin would you do to get the desires of your heart? It's a tough question. something we have to ask quite a bit in counseling ministry. We're typically asking, so you did this sin to get what you wanted. So we'd like to get ahead of that a little bit this morning and say, look in your heart. And let's figure out what it is that you're saying. I really have to have that. And then let's back up a little bit and see if that's part of God's plan for your life. So you have that part of it. You have that overall desire just to have your own will. So you're fighting core because you want that will. Then it says that, um, that, what do you do then? He's pointing out that it's definitely the problem is within us. It's a, it's a heart issue. He says, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Yeah. There are people that want things so badly that they'll kill for them. Is that not true? Didn't we just read that? Didn't we just start off with that? Why are our children killing each other? There's more death going on. I, I can't believe how many murders we hear about on a daily basis. And you can say, well, that's because those neighborhoods are bad. Well, those neighborhoods are bad because people want certain things in those neighborhoods. The drug dealer that shoots the other drug dealer doesn't want that guy selling drugs in his area. He has a desire to dominate. We all have those desires. We get frustrated with people and circumstances. We lash out at all those around us. We become willing to hurt and destroy in an effort to meet our needs. When I'm trying to meet my needs, get out of the way. I'm going for what I need. If you're in the way, you're just in the way. And so that's a problem. We'll do anything to eliminate our competition, including murder. You know, I just read, and I don't know what the issue was, but I just read about in Texas that a deacon of a church 
They were in a meeting, some kind of a meeting, a business meeting or something. Shot another deacon in the church and killed him. I told the first service they were probably arguing about whether or not they should give the pastor a raise. But I don't know what the reasoning was. I just know there was something in that man's heart that he wanted badly enough that the other man was resisting that he shot him. That's in the church. Guess how many divorces we have in the church? The numbers are the same in the church and out of the church. Every, every marriage today, within five years, 50% of them will end in divorce. In the church, out of the church. Interesting. They desired to get married at one point, and then they desired not to be married. Something happens along the way. So I want to point this out. All desires are not bad. All desires are not bad. They're not sin. They don't have to be sinful. There's a lot of really good things that you should desire. Let's use this one for instance. I got high school kids in here, don't I? Somewhere? Where are you guys at over here? Hi, high school kids. And maybe even college. You're not wanting to get married today, I understand. College, career, high school. You want God to give you a Christian husband or a Christian wife, depending on which one you want. You want a spouse that's a Christian. So that's your desire. And so you start praying and asking God for that. But he doesn't quite give it to you fast enough. What do you do? Do you go outside of the will of God and start looking to fulfill that desire yourself? I think we do sometimes. Watch out. Be careful with that. All right. So the result of these desires is we end up with selfish prayers. We can end up with selfish prayers. We end up with prayers. What kind of prayers do we have there at the beginning? He says, well, first of all, you don't pray at all. That's pretty selfish. He says, uh, you do not have because you do not ask. Why wouldn't you pray about something that you desire? Why, why wouldn't you do that? I'll tell you why. Sometimes our desires don't line up with what God's will is in our life. And we know that. So that's the last thing we're going to do is pray about that desire. Like in that instance over there, where the high school kids or the college-age kids that are looking for a spouse and they found the perfect unsaved person that God sent them. Something's wrong with that statement, huh? They found just the perfect one. Now, are they going to ask about that? You know what they're going to ask? God, would you please save them because I'm so in love with them now. That's what they're going to do. And I just warn you, don't go there. If God wants you to have that individual, don't think that I'm going to marry them and then they're going to get saved because I'm going to be such a great evangelist wife or husband. No. If God wants you to be with that person, he'll save them first and then let you have them. So we have a problem where we just don't ask. You know that when you don't ask, you know what you're saying? I don't need you, God. I'm showing a super abundant amount of independence. I will get what I want without asking you. Because I'm envying what others have. I'm going to go get that without even asking God about it. Oh, it gets really quiet in this room when we talk about this kind of subject matter. You know why? Because you all got a heart. And we're all battling this. So the battle of not asking is one part. 
And then that desire thing, I would say this too on that. You know what? Um, I think that God put a desire in me probably about five years ago to preach. All right? Now, you're all cringing at that probably. But he did that, and so I started, at first I avoided it. I kind of tried to push that down and say, that's really probably not, that's just me thinking that. And then as time went by, God just kept doing that. Do you think that's a good desire? I believe that's a great desire to have. It's scary, because most of you would never get up and just stand up here and say your name to people. Okay? So I, I'm up here doing that, but I'm also handling the Word of God, which scares me because I have to divide it right and properly. So when I get up and I do this, I'm fulfilling what the desire that God put in my heart to do. Because I would be insane to have the desire all by myself. I would. I wouldn't do it. I have too much reverence for this spot to just get up and do it flippantly. Believe me, God put it in me or I would not be standing here. But, so I can get up and I can tell you about Christ, I can tell you what you need to do with your heart, I can do all that, and that's wonderful. And then after the service, you come up and go, great job, pastor. Great job. I hope that's what you're going to say. But I'm kind of seeding that. So, so, but that, that wonderful desire that's within me to do God's will in my life, I can turn a switch and it can become evil. Because I like to hear that it was good. Now I desire to get up in front of people and preach and have you come and tell me what a great job I'm doing. I just switched something that God intended for good and I just switched it to a bad desire. And I dare say my prayer life would fall apart if that were to be the case. It would fall apart. The second part of um, the prayer issue I got my pages backwards here. There we go. I'm like, wait a minute. It's not here. What happened? Okay. So when you, when you do pray, so here's the thing. So now you're, you're not asking at all. When do we ask for desires? Let me tell you when we do it, according to this passage. We start to ask when we can't fulfill it ourselves. None of you have ever done that, have you? I need this. I need that. I'm going to go after it myself. And you go after it yourself. And then all of a sudden you realize, you know what, I'm not getting that thing that I wanted, but I really need this. You know, it might be a good idea if I ask God. I think I'll start asking. But then we do this. You ask with the wrong motives. What's he say? You ask so you can spend or take whatever that is that he gives you on your own pleasures. We're back to the desire of your heart. We're back there going... You just want stuff for yourself. So now you're asking God, please give me what I want. Oh, ATM machine God in heaven. I've done it. You've done it. So you got to be careful when you're praying and asking God for things. That you don't get too hung up in only prayers that gratify your desires. How many of you, when you pray... Never pray for anybody but your family. You only pray for your, your family and what they need. Be careful. I'm not saying that's bad. That's okay. Uh, at least you're praying. But I would say try and intercede on behalf of some others also. Because there's a danger there. If all you're praying for is yourself and for your family, 
that becomes pretty selfish if you're not careful. All right? And I'm not telling you not to pray for your unsaved family and stuff. You should. Let me ask you this. If, how would you complete this sentence? For to me, to live is blank. Honestly now, how would you answer that? Because I know the scripture says to live as Christ. But how would you answer that today? Is it, I would, uh, for me to live is the right job. For me to live is a particular goal that I set. For me to live is a possession. For me to live is another person or relationship. For me to live is my child to get saved. Oh, wait a minute, I crossed over somebody getting saved. That's Christ, and that's good. But I think the way we need to answer that is obviously put Christ there, but not not to be like Christ, not to just serve Christ, although that would be good, but to receive from Christ all you need. For me to live is Christ, and that's all I need. He's all I need. He's all I need. Can you answer it like that? Because you know what? For me to live as Christ, he's going to take care of all my needs. You believe that? He says he will. I'm glad some of you believe it. So he needs to be all you desire. You need to take your heart and take an examination of it. And I would say do some surgery on your heart. And we're going to show you how in a second here. But that's what needs to take place. You need to be able to look inward and say, what desires do I have that do not line up with the will of God? So let's see, second point would be consequences of the compromise that we must make. There's a compromise that we make. And we put our desire over God's when we do that. In verses 4 and 5, and I think this is the pivot point of this passage, you adulteresses, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? What what setting can you think of where the word adultery is an attractive word? I can think of no setting where I think that's a good word. And who are we committing adultery with in this passage? The world. Who designs the world? Satan himself. So who are we sleeping with? Satan. You can say the world, and that's true, but he's the designer of it. What is adultery? Let me define that real quick. Adultery occurs when one person looks outside the exclusive relationship of marriage to get his emotional and sexual needs met. A third party is added to the relationship that does not belong. Spiritual adultery occurs when a Christian looks outside the relationship to God to get their needs met. A third party, the world, is invited into the relationship. Now let me show you what that looks like. My wife's not in the service. She was in the first service. She's teaching third graders, but I'll use her because she's my wife. 
That would be like me, you bringing the world into the relationship with God, would be like me taking my worst enemy, or not my worst enemy, my wife's worst enemy, and bringing that woman into bed with Lynn and I. That's what it's like. Because guess what? No matter what you do, no matter what you do, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you have the Father with you all the time. You've got God with you all the time. You don't get to escape him and go over here and have an affair. He's with you when you're having the affair. Do you believe he's with you? He's with you. That's what he said. He indwells you. So now you go, well, I'm going to go over here and have an affair, but it's okay. You know what we do as Christians? We all love 1 John 1, 9. Because if we confess it, he's faithful to forgive us. Right? So sometimes I can have a desire in my heart that I want so badly, and I'm like, well, you know, I kind of know this isn't really in God's will, but I can go ahead and do it, because I can just do 1 John 1, 9 when I'm done. Oh, you've never done that, I'm sure. I'm probably the only one in the whole building that's ever done that. So the world is against God, and that's who you pull into bed with you. It's anti-God. So embracing the world is like bringing an enemy into the bed with you. And when we accept the world into our relationship, what happens to our relationship with God? We reject God when we do that. We're holding him at bay. The very God of the universe. We're saying, we don't want you right now. We want what we want. My desire is to fulfill what my heart wants. My flesh is crying out right now. And guess what, God? You're not in flesh here, so I'm just going to go over here and do what I want to do. What a mistake. 1 John 2.15 says that if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And then Christ himself said those who love money or even family members more than him are not worthy of him. Wow. So adultery takes place. We choose the world over God. With the world, and, and it's an interesting thing. With God, when we're living according to what God says to do, there's total peace. But when we get over here and try and battle for what we want, the conflict takes place. And there's a war, and we're willing to kill for things. And we envy, and we're jealous. But now watch what happens. So we commit adultery, and we are beyond insensitive. We are beyond insensitive. But I put down insensitive because that's the only word I could come up with. We're insensitive to how God feels about things when we're doing that. What does he say God happens to God here? In the passage, in verse 5, he says, Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He, who is the he? God jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us. The Spirit, if you look at your Bible, or my Bible has it down as a, a capital S, He desires the Holy Spirit inside of you. And you're over here playing in the world. So we're insensitive to the jealousy. Because God has feelings. You do know that, right? He does have emotions. So He becomes jealous. Well, doesn't it seem logical? If your wife came home today and told you she was sleeping with another man, would you be jealous? If your husband came home and said, I'm sleeping with another woman, would you be jealous? It would sure create some enmity in you, I'm sure. Especially if it was your 
arch rival enemy person. Just makes it worse. So we are insensitive to the feelings of the Holy Spirit. Our light, he is, listen to this now, he is your lifelong companion. The Holy Spirit is your lifelong companion, and he is the comforter in your life. Hmm. The desire of our heart causes us to not care about the feelings of anyone, and especially God. He's the last one on the list most of the time. You just don't care what he thinks. Otherwise, you wouldn't go after desires that don't meet up. Verse 6, he says that he is opposed to our pride and our arrogance, and that's what you're demonstrating when you're out here just doing your own thing. When you're out here doing your own thing, you're not talking to him, you're not asking him for anything, you're praying for the wrong things, you're praying for things that are selfishly motivated. Well, if that's not arrogance, I don't know what is. And he speaks to it in verse 6. And he says this, I love this, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Hmm. He gives a greater grace. Now, if you're here today and you've never met Jesus Christ, you don't know what that grace is. You just don't know. There's a couple graces going on here. There's the grace that you receive for salvation. But now, when you receive that grace, what was that? That was the gift of faith through God's grace, his unmerited favor on his behalf. It was his love displayed to us that he gave us the gift of faith to be able to believe that Jesus Christ died for us. Okay? So you got that going on. That's, the, that's one form of grace. Do you, have you, how many of you have been saved more than five years? Put a hand up. Have you ever felt his grace since then? All the time. All the time. Man, I got to get a drink of water. I sound like I'm screeching. So this kind of grace that he's talking about, the greater grace that he's talking about, is not just the grace represented for salvation. It's the hope for man's idolatrous heart. It's a natural state for you to want what you want. It's just natural. It's, it's the flesh side of us. We want what we want. We go get what we want. We buy things that we can't afford. Oh, nobody's ever done that. You needed a car and you went and bought a Mercedes when all you really needed was a Chevy. And you put yourself in debt for 10 years. Probably 10 years. It'd take me 10 years to pay for a Mercedes. He is ready in this kind of grace to take control of your lives and meet your needs and put an end to all your heart struggles. You hear that? That's the greater grace he's offering you today. He's offering you the very thing we lost when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. He's offering you reconciliation, peace with the God of the universe. And then this greater grace says, not only did I save you, but I'm giving you enough grace now that you can actually live a life that's seen as righteous before God. Can't do that if you don't know him. Sorry, you won't be able to do that. But let me tell you something now. How can you lay hold of this grace? Um, what's it say? Humble. He gives grace to the humble. So put away your pride. 
and pick up some humility and this greater grace comes along. All right? It takes humility to depend on somebody else, doesn't it? There's a humbleness in depending on someone else. You ever been flat broke and you needed money and somebody gave it to you? Isn't that humi- It's kind of humiliating in a way. You need the money, so you take it, humiliation or not. But there's a humbleness to having to take the money. And so when God, God has something for you, say, would you get rid of your pride, humble yourself, and I'll give you a greater grace. Oh, my goodness. Why wouldn't you want that? Well, you should want that. All right? So now the third point that I'll make is in verses 7 through 10. Not, as all, not all is bad. There's hope. There's hope in the passage. The cure for the idols of the heart take place in verses 7 through 10. There are 10 imperatives in this passage from this point, And we're going to run through them. Submit to God. Hmm. In order to submit to God and his will in my life, I need to know what that looks like. If I tell you, live by the Spirit and not by the flesh, and I don't give you anything but that, how will you know that you're living by the Spirit then? How will you know if you're living in your flesh or if you're living in your spirit? Well, because we have the Word of God. So sometimes we don't know what to submit to because we don't know the Word well enough. Huh? Okay, so let me just give you a little hint. Galatians 5. Galatians 5 is like a road map that tells you if you're living in your flesh or if you're living by the Spirit. You start about 16 and go to 25. And when you're acting out your life or you have something you desire, just compare it. There's two lists there. And actually, the flesh side, he doesn't even fulfill the list. There's a bunch of really bad things there, and he says, and, and things like this. He had to stop because there's so many things that you can do in your flesh. All right? So you can go there and say, okay, now how do I know if I'm, if I'm idolizing my heart here? Am I doing the wrong thing, or am I living by the Spirit? Now, you have a conscience, of course, but I'm just saying, if you want to compare it, take a look at Galatians 5 there. I won't go through that. It's not enough time. Then the next thing he says to do is resist the devil. What happens when you resist the devil in the passage? He flees. Oh, the devil's too big. I can't fight with him. No, you just, you're not going to win a battle with him. But if you resist him, but so you've got to do both. It's, the two are connected. I'm submitting to the Father. I'm submitting to God. And I'm resisting the devil. And then what happens? The next one says, draw near to God. And what happens when you draw near to God? He draws near to you. Will the devil stay in the same company with God? Nope, he can't. He flees. So it's not just you out here doing your own thing, living according to the world's standard, and the devil's going to flee. Oh, no, no, he's going to pester you big time. He's already pestering you. He's already the one got you living by the world. He's got you. Guess what? The world's attractive. It's attractive. It's made to be attractive. Why do you think our marriages are falling apart? You think your marriages are falling apart because women are all wearing sackcloth and ashes? You don't see that in advertising. I sure don't. You can't go anywhere without seeing somebody half-dressed. And women don't smile and laugh because you look at the men just the same as the women look at the women. At, at the men look at women. I know I counsel enough of you to know. All right? So... Is the advertising for America, let me ask you this, is the advertising for America set up for family values? No. 
It's not. It's doing everything it can to tear your family apart. Subliminally, they don't say they're doing it, but they are. So submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. You resist the devil, he flees. Now then, what takes place? What happens next? Cleanse your hands. Wash your hands up. Don't be coming to the table with dirty hands. Clean those hands up. The wonderful thing is that God's grace will provide a bountiful supply of soap and water for you. Clean water, fresh clean water and some good old Holy Spirit soap to wash you up a bit. Now that's the external part. When you start to do that, that's the first thing we see. Right? I can tell if you got dirty hands. It's hard to hide your hands unless you got them in gloves. I can look right at your hands and see if they're dirty. Okay? So right away, you start to clean up the hands. That's the outward behavior. That's the outward thing. Things start to change. When somebody becomes a believer in Christ, they don't do the same things they used to do. They're getting washed up. All right? So then he says, purify your heart. Purify the heart. What does that represent? That's your thoughts, your motives, your desires. That's the thing I can't see. I get to see it based on the fruit of your life. Because whatever's going down in the root, down in your heart, that does show up. You can say, well, I'm hiding pretty good because nobody ever talks to me at church. The pastors don't even know I exist. Well, that's, you're probably right. We probably don't know then if we don't know you exist. But you'd be amazed how much we do know. Sometimes we know things about you because of the things you don't do, not everything that you do do. It's not, we, don't, we don't look at you and go, oh, that guy's doing good because he's not doing anything bad. No, not necessarily. That guy's not doing well because he's not doing anything good. Huh. And so I'll leave that alone. The next part here in verse 9 is confusing to some, but let me see if I can so, just kind of sum it up for you. Verse 9 we take on a, a deal where we say, he says, um, be miserable, mourn, weep, let your laughter turn to mourning. What he's really saying there is he's saying, you need to become sober-minded about your sin. Be sober-minded about the things you desire. When you're desiring the wrong things, that should cause a mourning in you. That should make you miserable if you're desiring the wrong things. You should mourn, you should weep. You don't laugh it off like it's no big deal. I'm just going to confess, John 1, 9, I got that one in my back pocket as I go into the bar to pick up a girl. What? You'd be amazed how many people do that. Talking, oh, man, we had, oh, I've been on jobs where you're like, oh, man, I went to church yesterday and God just moved through the building. And then they're cussing like two seconds later. Huh? You don't have that on your jobs, I'm sure. I've been there. I've seen that happen. So that's what we do. We become sober-minded. I don't act like my sin is no big deal. I don't act like the desires of my fleshly self are no big deal. I take those serious. I mourn over the fact that I've sinned against God. I weep and ask for forgiveness. I just got to confess John 1, 9. I know that. But true repentance is going to do this. This is true repentance. That other is just a little tagline. I'm not sure if God's going to even accept that. He wants to see a change in you. That's true repentance. And change comes by doing these things. I'm miserable in my sin. I mourn, I weep, I can't laugh about it. Verse 10, the final of the 10 imperatives. And um, 
This has become my life's verse, this verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Guess what pride does? It's a puffing up of yourself. All those desires I have is for me to get something and me become better, and I'm just really trying to exalt myself. I really am. I want the bigger house. I want the better car. I want the, I want, I want, I want. And God says, it's not what I want for you. Well, God, I realize that's not what you want for me. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to humble myself before you. I'm going to humble, I'm going to get on my face before you. I'm going to get so low that I can taste the dust. Huh? You ever been there? You ever done that? I've done it. I get humble before him. God, I don't want to be exalting myself. What advantage would that be? I'd be a wreck. I'd be mourning. I'd be miserable. I'd be weeping. I want to be back to you. I want to humble myself before you. And when I do that, then the promise comes. What's the promise? Then he will exalt you. Do you want to be exalted by men or God? I want to be exalted by God. And I got to be careful with that or that'll become a desire in my heart and that'll be wrong. You got to be careful with this stuff. You got to live according to the spirit. So now that we've said that, I would say that if you're here and you're unsaved, you've never met Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you have no way of doing the things we just talked about. Because I have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to live this life. But you can submit to God. You can. You can submit to his will. He has a gift for you this morning. It's called the gift of faith. And if he gives that to you, you'll be able to believe that Jesus Christ. Did you know that if you're here this morning without him, you need a savior? You have sinned, you fall short of the glory of God, and if you had to stand before God today, you would not be able to go into heaven. You would end up in hell. Because that's your destination if you don't know the son. But he says, but if you will accept Jesus Christ and what he did for you. What did he do? He took the form of a man. He died on a cross for us. Took our sins there. Died on a cross. Buried in a tomb. Rose again on the third day. Sitting at the right hand of the Father now. Interceding on your behalf. Well, who doesn't want that gift? Well, when you already have that gift, you understand it a lot better. But if you are here today and you're a little confused... Would you see us afterward, and we'll be glad to share even more of that with you. But let me ask you, church, a few questions. Are the idols of your heart and your desires keeping you from a proper relationship with those around you? Husbands, are you having the correct relationship with your wife? And if not, why not? Is there something in your heart that's preventing that? Wives? Same question with you. Is there something that's preventing you from having a proper relationship with the, with the husband that God gave you? Hmm. What about with God? Is there things in your heart that doesn't allow your prayer life to be effective? Are there things in your life that you, you don't even pray because you know you've got all these things in your life? Wow. You're not able to tap into God's power because of the desires of your heart are incorrect. Hmm. What about, this is the classic, we said it earlier, 
What sins are you willing to commit to get the desires of your heart? What sins will you commit if you don't get the desire of your heart? Well, I would say this. This is the final thought on it. And we'll give you some time to do this. Ask God, as David did in Psalm 139, 23, and 24, to search your heart today and reveal anything that's in there that's not right. It's a, it's a scary kind of a prayer. Search me, Lord. If there's anything in there that's not right, would you reveal it to me? Let me know. Because you might be sitting here going, I, I don't think I have any of those. You might want to pray that prayer. Because if, if you think you don't have any of those, but yet you're not going anywhere in your Christian life, you're not maturing, you're not, you don't have that prayer life, you're, you're struggling, you may want to examine that again. And you may want to ask God for help with that. And he will help you figure that out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. I thank you that um, you allowed James to write these passages down for us, this passage down for us. It's a problem that I suffer with. It's a problem that everybody in the room has. It's a common problem to man is to want what we want, even to the point that we'll sin to get what we want, knowing that we're sinning against you. I would ask you, Lord, that your word would penetrate the lives. It wouldn't just be another message that a guy got up there and spoke loudly at him for a few minutes, but that your word would penetrate the hearts of the people and make some changes in their hearts, that they would uh, get rid of the idols in their heart. He said in Ezekiel 14, that your idols are so prevalent that you've got them right in front of your face and they're causing you to stumble. You can't even walk. You got your, it's like walking with our hands in front of our face. And you, you won't tolerate that with your children. So I would ask you, Lord, work in the hearts of your people. If there's someone here who's never met Jesus Christ, all that you would uh, prompt their heart to come up and ask us questions as the other elders and different counselors in front will assist them. Thank you for your word of God. May it, uh, may it be taken out of these doors and taken at home and, and may it change people. And thank you for the opportunity that you give this pastor to be able to speak the truth of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.